You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Today, Brendan and I are joined with Jim Glassman, who is Managing Director and Head Economist for Commercial Banking at J.P. Morgan Chase. Before joining J.P. Morgan, Jim served as Senior Economist in the Research and Statistics and Monetary Affairs Departments at the Federal Reserve Board. He has a bachelor's degree from the University of Illinois, a master's degree in economics from the University of Illinois at Chicago, and a PhD in economics from Northwestern University. Jim's work at J.P. Morgan Chase, combined with his independent economic and financial markets research, has earned him features in national media as an economic commentator. More details on his analysis for real estate and multifamily in particular can be found on Story by J.P. Morgan Chase, a new real estate management platform featuring digital rent collection, market insights, educational content, and more for multifamily property owners and investors. You can learn more about that at story.jpmorganchase.com. We do want to let you know that we did officially release the short-term rental tax course, which teaches you everything you need to know about the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. In the course, I cover an overview of the short-term rental loophole and its powerful tax benefits, how to materially participate in your short-term rentals to reduce taxes on your W-2 and other active income, how to maximize your tax savings using cost segregation studies and bonus depreciation, as well as how to avoid critical mistakes that can cost you thousands of dollars in tax savings. By the end of the course, you will know exactly what you need to do to use the short-term rental loophole to save five to six figures in taxes. With the amount of value that is included in this course and the potential tax savings, I could have easily charged upwards of $997 or perhaps even $1,500 for this course. But you know what? Because I want to help as many people use the short-term rental loophole as possible, I'm giving it away for only $247. This is really next to nothing if you think about the potential tax savings that you can get from using a short-term rental loophole. And with bonus depreciation phasing out over the next few years, the sooner you can take advantage of the short-term rental loophole, the more tax you'll be able to save. So if you're ready to save five to six figures in taxes by using the short-term rental loophole, you can enroll in the course today by going to courses.taxsmartinvestors.com and enrolling. It's just that simple. Again, that's courses.taxsmartinvestors.com. And without further ado, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a brief overview of your background and your role at JP Morgan? I'm the head economist for the commercial bank. So I see a lot of clients. Um, love that work. Went to school in the Midwest, Northwestern, went to the Fed for nine years. I went to the Fed when Paul Volcker went. I spent the decade there. And then I um, moved from Washington, D.C. to Morgan Guarantee and then Chemical Bank, which has sort of become J.P. Morgan Chase. And uh, my job is to sort of help people make sense of the economic news that's you know out there. It's uh, Every day is a different story, so it's confusing for a lot of folks. Absolutely. So, you know, today everybody's really concerned about the economy and where we might be headed. But before we kind of like go through all of that, would you be able to give us a kind of a brief summary of where we are today and kind of how we got to this point? Well, we had a nightmare two years ago when we shut down the economy for the, for the pandemic. People thought that we were heading into something that might look like the Great Depression. But the fact is, we had a lot of things going on that were going to help us to get back on our feet. 
And this event that we've been struggling with for the last two years really reminds me more of a natural disaster than a business cycle. So what's been going on, we've gone from total panic about how this is all going to work. And it was not just a U.S. phenomenon. Globally, the whole, the whole world economy kind of got shaken. Uh, output in the U.S., the, the national economy plunged 15%. Now, over the last two years, we've been recovering. We're basically back on our feet right now. And what's really interesting is all the concerns about the lockdowns and the problems for the restaurant business and the fitness centers and everybody that was really on the front lines, those worries have now transitioned to complaints about supply chain bottlenecks and inflation problems. And that's really become the dominant conversation today because when there's an inflation issue, you worry that the Federal Reserve is going to have to do something about it. And so interest rates go up, and that makes people nervous about the possibility of a new recession. Um, That's all a theoretical worry right now. The Fed hasn't done anything yet to make you really worry about a recession, but the market's anticipating that they might have to. So I think, honestly, you know, when I talk to clients, I ask people, what problem would you rather struggle with? What you were dealing with two years ago when you didn't know whether you might exist even? or the challenges you face today, finding workers, dealing with cost pressures, dealing with supply chain issues, dealing with inflation. And I think most people will tell you, I'd I'd much rather deal with what I deal with right now than two years ago. Two years ago, a lot of businesses were not sure they would have been existing. So there's a lot to chew on here, but I really think to an economist, the things we worry about today are music to my ears compared to what I was listening to two years ago, because honestly, in my career, of all the things that I've lived through and watched, what happened in March 2020 was the scariest thing I've ever seen. And so when people say, oh, there's so much uncertainty now, and I'm worried about a recession, I'm worried about the Fed, honestly, nothing going on today worries me as much as what we were dealing with two years ago. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Why was it the scariest thing from an economist's point of view that you've ever seen? Because we've never done anything quite like that. We've got a U.S. economy and a global economy that's very interconnected. And over the decades, businesses have been getting really efficient, running by just-in-time inventories, outsourcing their supply chains to Mexico and China, Vietnam. And so the world has gotten, and manufacturers have been able to break apart the manufacturing process and take the low-value-added stuff and move it to some other areas. So the world has gotten very interconnected and interdependent. So when you have a pandemic and everybody is dealing with it and they're having to go through the same process, shutting the economy down, we've never seen a thing like that before. And we don't know, you know, at at the time, we knew there was going to be havoc. We knew that when when you ask people to stay home, we knew that was going to be trouble. We just, we didn't really understand it because we've never seen anything quite like that. And, but, you know, when you look at all the things that were going on, the advances in medical science, the technology that we had to allow people to migrate from their office to work from home, shop online, communicate virtually. And then when you saw the government's response to the crisis, the amount of money they were willing to unleash, you know, it didn't take long for economists to start breathing a sigh of relief. But in those early moments, in that early moment, I heard people telling me this is going to be another Great Depression. And believe me, this is not a straw man. If you watched what the banking system did in March 2020, what we did anticipating financial disaster, we set aside reserves 
as many reserves as we set aside back in 2009 when the housing crisis shut us down. So that's telling you the banking system, which is very, people are very familiar with cycles, panicked and thought we were going to see a normal disaster of an economic cycle. And so you can't be surprised that businesses, you didn't know how they were going to respond, but you knew that people were facing an existential crisis and they were going to start getting very cautious. And when that happens, it feeds on itself and you just don't know how you can control it. So, uh, you know, most business cycles, they sort of happen slowly. They unravel, things unravel slowly. Recoveries kind of take place slowly. So we never face the kind of problems we're dealing with right now because recoveries usually take seven years or so to happen. And so businesses have a chance to keep up with things. But when you have a crisis, we shut things down and everybody basically give everybody paid leave. And you say, stay home until we get this issue fixed. And then, you know, when we lift restrictions, people get out, want to go back to life quickly. But the business community, which has got its supply chains all over the world, can't move that quickly. And that's why we're dealing with the kind of stresses we're dealing with right now that are, you know, and it's not just pandemic, by the way. The problems that are really driving a lot of inflation issues are all about Ukraine. They're all about Ukraine and they're all about Taiwan and getting microprocessor chips to the auto industry. So that's telling you that what we're dealing with here is really quite unprecedented. I'm sort of amused, by the way, if I can just uh, footnote to this story. I'm amused by a commercial I hear. It goes like this. In these unprecedented times, now more than ever, we need to understand history. My reaction is if these are unprecedented times, (laughs) history doesn't have a whole lot to say about it. And that's the problem we're all having is that we've never seen anything like this. And people are trying to shoehorn what's going on into the typical template, which has nothing to do with what's going on today. It's interesting you say that because I I saw on Twitter and and I don't follow the jobs reports, so this could be totally unsubstantiated. But I saw on Twitter the other day, uh, somebody made a tweet saying, oh, this they're being like joking, like tongue in cheek, but this is the first recession I've ever seen where we've added jobs. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, the Fed, and the Fed's raising interest rates, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Now, there is a, uh, a lot of negativity out there. So before we jump into the housing market specifically, which is what all of our listeners want to know about, what are some of the positive things that you're seeing in the economy today? You know, everything about the macro economy is positive. From my point of view, uh, we've had a crisis. We've done an amazing job recovering from it. Yeah, there's, to me, having to worry about supply chain problems and inflation problems is a symptom of how successful we've been getting out of this nightmare two years ago. So the positive things are that we've got the economy back on its feet, even though the whole world shut down two years ago. We're back on our feet. The crisis, as as often happens, a crisis makes people work harder to figure out how to get around it. And we've seen a lot of automation going on in the last two years. People have learned how to do what Amazon's been doing for a while, reaching the customer on uh, digital channels. We have, you know, in, in a sense, the key macro things that I could point to that are positive are kind of reflected in the equity market. Now, you might think, why would you use the equity market? It's down 20% this year, right? But historically, the equity market is higher today relative. The valuations are higher today than ever before, even you know prior to the pandemic. 
And that tells you that, yeah, there are a lot of things you can worry about, Ukraine and all the dislocations caused by that, and the worry about the Fed and what, you know, where are they going and where are interest rates going? Do you really have to worry about a recession? But honestly, God, given those worries, the fundamental valuation of the equity market, the U.S. stock market is valued at one and a half times the size of the U.S. economy. I never saw that in the old days. The best you could say about the equity market was it might, in good times, it might equal the size of the U.S. economy. And the reason this is happening is because, you know, workers might not cheer about this, but if you look at profitability of businesses, they're off the charts. Never seen anything like this. 10 to 12%. After tax profits, 10 to 12% of GDP. Uh, historically, for most of the post-World War II period, they were basically 6% of GDP. So that's telling you that for all, for all the chaos that's going on here, companies are managing to work with it. They're navigating the landscape. And all this, yeah, there are a lot of things that are more costly dealing with pandemic-related stuff. But the fact is the crisis has forced people to take advantage of technology that's been bubbling for a long time. The big companies know how to do They've been doing this all along. But it's little guys that don't really do it until they actually have to do it to survive. And honestly, I think that's pretty telling. And by the way, you see this. If you look at the restaurant business, for example, kind of gives you a taste of what's going on here. Retail sales of restaurants are back to where they were, if not higher, compared to the pandemic. And yet there are 10% fewer people working. How are they doing this? That's telling you something about they're being forced to figure out how to be more efficient. Maybe you and I are doing more of the work with the QR codes and all that. But that's just a hint of the kind of things that a shock like this does to help make businesses look harder at the kind of things they could be doing. Upgrading back office systems, touchless technology, digital channels, reaching consumers, all those kinds of things are, are really what's behind this. Speaking of equities, what can you tell our listeners about the technology companies taking such a massive hit? I feel like technology companies have been absolutely crushed, which is... It's, you know, it's partly, you know, you know, it's partly because technology companies were valued. These were the guys that were really driving the boom in the equity market, particularly during the pandemic. So when you get to really high levels of valuation, it doesn't take a lot to start raising worries. So, you know, people are worried about interest rates. God knows why higher interest rates are a problem for the technology sector. The technology sector is about a transformation that's going on. Just think about Amazon. I can do it in five minutes, but it used to take me a whole day to go, you know, um, what's going on with interest rates should be of no concern for technology companies. But I think when you're coming out of a period where the valuations are so high, you know, and you've got a lot of issues going on with Ukraine, we don't know where that's going. It's a big problem for the European region. And when you have inflation issues that are making the Fed take action, you can understand why people are worried. But I really don't, I don't think any of this has much to do with what technology is giving us. And I, I think the benefits of technology were really underscored by the pandemic shock. And I doubt the lessons of that this last two years is really going to be lost on people. Well, that'll be a really good transition into the housing market because I think that most people would agree the housing market has run up significantly in the past couple of years. People owning large real estate portfolios have made an incredible amount of money or wealth. Where do you see the housing market today? What does the current state of the housing market look like? You know, honestly, 
Of course, there are challenges, but it looks really positive to me. And I'll tell you why. Real estate is really complicated and confusing because it's at the crossroads of a lot of things that go on. The ebb and flow of economic activity and economy, interest rates, demographics, global trends, the pandemic shock, and the way that changed life for a lot of people. There, A lot of people have learned that they can actually work remotely a little more than they were, so they've got more options. So here's the thing. Most people think, well, gee, if interest rates are going up, isn't that negative for real estate? Well, by itself, it, it is. But by itself, it is. Because when interest rates go up, I can't qualify for as much of a loan as I could when interest rates were low. And so that makes me have to rethink how I'm going to live. Do I have to rent? It's not as easy to buy a place when interest rates go up. But the problem is, the confusion for real estate is that interest rates, why are interest rates going up? Interest rates are going up because the broad economy has managed to survive a global disaster. And so, yes, by themselves, higher interest rates are a problem. But if we're back on our feet and the job market's good and companies are having a hard time finding people and worker pay is going up and we have more options for working and more and more people are moving to a stage of life where they can, they're getting married, they're starting families. Those are all positive things for housing. So to me, you know, you could have worried about multifamily if you thought that the pandemic was going to scatter everybody. They're going to leave urban centers and move somewhere else. But in fact, as we as life is normalizing, we're slowly coming back to where we were. And I think personally, what's going on here is, in my mind, as a macroeconomist, I think of the macro trends as kind of means that the wind is at the back of the multifamily sector because higher interest rates mean that it's going to increase the demand for you know apartment living, renting. If I can't afford a house, I'm going to have to rent. And if I'm working my way back to something more normal and moving back to the city, I may be able to work remotely you know, up the Hudson River, for example, in a place that I bought or rented, but I still have to have the place in the city because people badly want workers to be back on the job. That's how we build culture. That's how we learn stuff. So I really think, honestly, that there's a lot going on is positive for the real estate market, even though interest rates are up. And you know, we may not see real estate values doing what they did last year. I wouldn't be shocked if real estate values kind of uh, hold steady or, or fall back a little bit for residential because of the impact of higher interest rates. But it, you still have to live somewhere. And it's really a question of where you're going to live. And you know, t- I'll tell you, one of the things that's positive for not only single family, but also multifamily, for 10 years, For the last 10 years, the recovery that we've seen in the housing sector from the housing crisis a decade ago was one of the slowest recoveries I've ever seen from the data that we know. And why was that? Well, if you look at household formation, it tells you everything. Going back a decade, people coming out of college came into a job market that was very difficult. And so this this is the class of 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. And so what we saw was an awful lot of people just they came out of college and then they just decided to go back to school or they had to live with their parents. And so when you look at household formation, the number of people who were starting families, starting their own, uh, it really slowed in half. And that's why everything related to the housing sector was really kind of slow. But in the last two or three years, 
that's really changed. And as, as people come of age, they're starting their own families. People get married 10 years later today. They start families later today. They move to the suburbs 10 years later. They buy cars 10 years later. And that's really been showing up visibly in the housing sector. So you look at multifamily construction, uh, you wonder, why is it booming? And you look at residential you know, housing starts, they've been trending up steadily, no matter what goes on with interest rates. And I think it's a reminder, it's a reminder that macro things are relevant, but demographics is a big deal here. And the response to an economic crisis left a real big mark on the housing sector, which now is reversing. And, you know, when you look at rents across the country, for example, you look at rent in San Francisco, it's flat for two years. Look at the rents in Atlanta, Miami, Tampa Bay, Phoenix, booming, double digit. And it's a reminder that while the macro backdrop is important and does drive a lot of what's going on here, there are vast differences depending on where you are, depending on the market you're in. The pandemic might have been part of that story. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from Relay. If you invest in real estate and manage properties, then you need banking that's truly built for your business. With all the bank accounts you have to manage for your properties, account minimums, overdraft fees, and issues connecting to accounting software like QBO or Landlord Studio, things can get extremely complex. This is why I recommend Relay. Relay is an online banking and money management platform that is perfect for real estate businesses. First, there are no accounting fees, no overdraft fees, no minimum balances, which means you get to keep more money in your pocket. And Relay goes beyond just the basics of banking to help you understand precisely what you're earning, spending, and saving. You can get up to 20 checking accounts to organize and allocate income for things like day-to-day expenses, investments, or taxes. And if you have multiple properties set up with multiple business entities, Relay lets you open unlimited accounts and access everything from one single login. Best of all, Relay makes bookkeeping speedy by giving you extra detailed transaction data and directly syncing back to accounting softwares like QuickBooks Online and and zero. It only takes 10 minutes to apply for a free Relay account, and you can do that online by going to www.relayfi.com slash the real estate CPA. Again, that's www.relayfi.com slash the real estate CPA. Go ahead and check that out, but right now we're going to get right back into today's episode. Would you say it's a bad idea for prospective buyers to buy today? Because So I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I, I mean, we're seeing price cuts all over. But I mean, you know, people are listing their homes for 30% more than they bought them for two years ago. So they're still coming out way ahead. They're just dropping it yeah. from 30 to 25 yeah, or yeah, 20%. Yeah. yeah. So prices are still, you know, going bananas. But I guess my question is, would it be a bad idea to try to get into the market today or even to expand one's portfolio, knowing that these price cuts are happening, even taking that interest rate on the chin with the higher mortgage payment, the higher debt service? knowing that perhaps at some point in the future, rates are going to come back down and you can refinance into cheaper debt service? Or do you kind of see these high interest rates sticking around for a while? Yeah, I think the way to think about this is the aberration in the interstate market was the last two years. Mortgage rates, 30-year mortgage rates were down close to 3%. That's the aberration. And the reason that was happening is because the pandemic lockdowns was forcing the Fed to push rates to zero. That's not normal. So the way I look at what's going on now is we're, we might have overreacted this spring. Uh, mortgage rates have jumped from 3 to 5%, more 5 to 5.5%. That's a little bit of an exaggeration given what's happened to 10-year treasury yields. 10-year treasury yields are 
have moved up from, I don't know, one and a half or two percent to three percent. But I think the way I would look at this is we're closer to normal now than we were in the last two years. So we're going to have to get used to it. It takes a while because if you've only been in the market for a couple of years, you, you come to think of what we had in the last couple of years as normal. When for most economists, that was not normal at all. And so here's the thing. When interest rates move as rapidly as they have, it takes a little while to figure out what is that going to do to um, housing values. And I think I think the best thing to say is that what's happening now, there's no rush to jump into the market. We don't know where this is going. My guess is the 20% increases that in real estate values that we saw last year are history, because you can explain why that happened just by knowing that mortgage rates went from 4% to 3%. But when mortgage rates go from 3% to 5.5%, you got to think that we're going to see a little bit of pain. And and the the beautiful thing about real estate is the real estate market is very resilient. It knows how to adapt to a changing environment. And my guess is it's the valuation that will change more than anything else. People, you have to live somewhere. But I I think when you see this kind of run up in mortgage rates, you have to know that there's going to be a little bit of, you're hearing a lot of anecdotes about this. You have to know there's going to be a little bit of a pullback in the valuation. So what I what I really hear you saying is that I'm never going to be able to move <laughs> because I, I locked in I locked in a two eight five rate for thirty years. That's what I'm anchored to. I'm never going to be able to leave this. You're going to want to stay with that. <laughs> but the only reason you're going to change is if your family situation changes. That's how I find. You know, people's housing needs have less to do with interest rates and the economy than their own personal yeah. situations. That's the problem. Yeah. But, but I think the thing. No, I think you could have worried, by the way, even before the pandemic. I sort of, you know, when I got out of school, I bought into the housing market when interest rates were very high. And many of us learned when they're very, and they were abnormally high because the Fed was stepping on the brakes. And when the when inflation finally broke and came down, interest rates came down and we all discovered that we could refinance every day. And that drove real estate values up. So I always, from, from my, my own personal experience, I always worried that when rates get to very low levels and look kind of like abnormally low, if they start grinding their way back to something more normal, it won't help real estate values. But I think, you know, I think the, the aberration was really last year. I think we're now kind of in a, in a more normal zone. It's, it'll take a little while to figure out what's normal. And at the end of the day, real estate values are going to be driven by the fundamental need for housing and where are people moving? And it all sort of depends on where you are. I mean, um, if for an economist, economists will tell you, look, if you look at the country as a whole, our population growth is slowing down. Normally, when you see a thing like that, you would say, well, gee, if the population is slowing down, then doesn't that mean that demand for housing is going to be slowing down and all that? Except America is a different story because in America, we move. People are in motion. And people are moving to the southeast and to the south and to the mountain states. And the problem is, if I live in Chicago and I decide to go to Tampa, I can't take the house with me. So where the population goes, that's where the residential activity is booming. And that's why when you look across the country, no surprise, the rents are exploding and the housing activity is exploding in the mountain states, in the south, in the southeast. All they talk about down in the Carolinas is this massive 
net immigration flows. You know this from Raleigh, but in South Carolina, it's even stronger, and Florida. So that tells you that this macro story about the population slowing down is not really relevant for people in the real estate business. What really matters more is you know keep your eye on the flows of the population state by state. And that's they're really stunning, actually. So if, if people are in motion, you want to know where they go because that's where the new energy and real estate activity is going to be. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So what I'm hearing there is interest rates will have somewhat of an impact on housing and prices, but it's more driven by the fundamentals of the actual real estate market and where people are moving to, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and the interest rates. Yeah, you know, and in, in fact, I was as I was thinking about this the other day, if you look at a long history of interest rates and rents or interest rates and housing prices, you don't see much correlation. That the first thing you notice is that business cycles have the greatest impact on rents and real estate values. If you had to order the things to keep be aware of, it's the business cycle, then it's the demographic flows. I mean, how do you explain why the Bay Area, not much is going on, it's very stagnant, but Utah is booming, Idaho booming, Denver booming, Austin, you know, Texas, and places like that. So it's a re- it's a reminder to me that what I look at, it does matter, but it's local market conditions that matter more. And those local market conditions are being driven by demographic flows and uh, the attractiveness of an area and um, the affordability of an area relative to other areas. You know, in the last decade, by the way, because the recovery was really led by the tech sector, so the West Coast and New York as well, what you notice is that real estate got very expensive in the Bay Area, Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, very expensive relative to other areas. So watching this, I always thought that when things get very expensive, you're going to see a natural kind of an organic rebalancing, that people would start moving out of expensive areas into other areas. And I think that's part of what's going on here. And it's also a reminder that there's so many things going on in real estate that there's no one simple answer to the story. That's why if you're only focused on interest rates, as the issue for real estate, you're going to be missing many of the stories. Right, right. Because it's more driven by the fundamentals of the market more than the interest rates. You know, yeah. With all this being said, you know, where do you see the market going maybe over the next three years or so? I think once we get through the current indigestion of having to get used to what the financial environment looks like in normal times, it's going to be pretty positive because we're still recovering from more than a decade of people not being able to start on their own or for their own. I mean, a lot of people were living with their parents or they were in school. It takes a while to work that through. And that's why when you when you look at what's going on, the fundamentals in the housing market have really changed dramatically in the last couple of years. Household formation is now beginning to grow faster than the long run trend. But that's because we had a decade a very low rate of household formation. And at the same time, it's going to take a while to figure out, can I work remotely one or two days? I think the pandemic is giving us more options for managing our work experience. And all that stuff is going to be playing out here in the next several years, encouraging, maybe not as extreme as what we've been seeing in the last couple of years, but people have more options. And so 
living in the city, but also running to a place a couple hours away and working remotely is a positive thing for the housing sector. Makes a lot of sense. So basically, long story short, the housing sector is going to do well and continue to do well. I think so. It's expected to do well over the next few years, despite everything that's kind of going on right now. So the only thing I would worry about, the only thing I learned from my career, the, the only thing that I ever learned that you're supposed to worry about for real estate is if you find yourself in a situation that they were in back in the 70s when Paul Boker had to come to the Fed and they had to step on the brakes. That was a nightmare for the real estate sector. So if a central bank has to do something to break the trend on inflation, then they have to push interest rates to levels that are way above normal. I don't think that's what we're dealing with now. What we're dealing with now is not related, nothing to do with what Paul Volcker and the Fed dealt with back in the 1970s. This is a problem that is caused by temporary, it's all really supply-side distortions going on related to the successful recovery from the pandemic. And it's about Ukraine. So I would say as long as the Federal Reserve doesn't have to do something like, for example, if they had to raise interest rates, you know, they, they think normal is 2 to 3%. If they had to push rates up to 5 to 6%, then I would worry more about real estate. But as long as we're going to get through this, as the market basically is anticipating, if you look at investors' long-run inflation expectations, no one really sees a repeat of that 1970s problem. And that's why I think at the end of the day, as long as I don't have to worry about the need to shut the economy down because of some kind of inflation issue, then I don't think there's a lot to worry about the real estate. I'm sure our listeners are going to love to hear that. Everybody's slightly concerned. Um, you know, in terms of lending itself, you know, back in 2008, around that time, lending kind of shut down a little bit. Banks kind of stopped lending as freely as they did before. Now, do you see that being impacted at all? Um, no. At all? No, you know, you know what the problem was back then? The problem was that thanks to securitized finance, money was available and credit was cheap. And it was cheap, even though the value, the value of houses had risen far more than we'd ever seen relative to our ability to afford them. And what happened was investors who were buying mortgage-backed securities were forgetting that when prices get way out of line compared to what we normally are used to seeing, things might correct. So what happened was it, we, we were, you know, 2008, 2009, lending shut down because credit kind of went overboard. The credit was too easy, and you know people were flipping homes and able to buy houses, uh, be able to get much bigger loans than ever before because lending standards kind of got lax. And that's because investors weren't really doing. People were assuming, well, if prices go up, and even if they're crazy, uh, you don't have to worry about it because we've never seen prices go down. Well, now we know otherwise. We now know that if real estate values get out of line. You have to pay attention. So personally, I don't think the lending system, what you saw in the last couple of years is nothing like what happened in the 2006, 2008 period. So I don't really think we're looking at a situation like a repeat of that. That the reason real, real estate values went up a lot last year, not because lending standards got sloppy. They went up because mortgage rates came down dramatically. And that's a different story. Now, mortgage rates have gone back up again. That will limit people's ability to afford as much of a loan as they could have. 
But lending standards are not going to change because they've been fairly disciplined. And ever since 2008 and nine, since that crisis, lending standards have been pretty disciplined. It kind of, you know, gone back to the norms of the, uh, of the old days. That's good to know. So in a little bit of a summary here, basically, I think what we heard is that you know, interest rates are going to not impact the market aggressively or in any real material way to be overly concerned about. Uh, the market's still going to be driven by the fundamentals of real estate, which is population, migration, in a sense, and demographics. And then at the same time, lending uh, isn't going to be pulled back necessarily like it was in the past. So it sounds like yeah, you know, this is what I'm gathering here that the housing market is still in a relatively healthy place. And, and yeah. there isn't an overwhelming amount of reason to be concerned. I think that's right. I mean, obviously, there's a challenge when interest rates go up. But in, in my mind, interest rates are going up because the economy, the outlook is looking much more favorable, despite all the worry about recession. To me, that's a theoretical debate. And um, I don't think the Fed is going to find that it needs to raise interest rates so high that it triggers a recession. So I think you're right. I think the basic fundamentals are taken as a whole, are fairly constructive for real estate. That's always good to hear. So I guess before we wrap up and close out, is there anything else that real estate investors should know about or be concerned about given what's going on or, or what's coming up in the future? You know, I don't think so. I, I think the thing to be aware of is the all the worries that are in the market right now that make people talk about recession, they're reacting to the headlines. And I think when you look behind the scenes at what's going on, what you see is not as scary to me as the conversation reflects. For example, 90% of the inflation problems that we're dealing with today are about energy and food and new and used cars. These are not things that interest rates are going to fix. Secondly, so in other words, there's not a whole lot the Fed can do about what's going on here. And I think time is going to resolve a lot of these problems. As, as time passes and we get these bottlenecks cleared up, and a big chunk of the problem here is related to the dislocations caused by Ukraine. To me, the most important piece of the backdrop, though, that makes me not worry about inflation and, and tells me that what we're dealing with today is very different from what we've been dealing with in the past when inflation was a problem, that when you, thanks to the way the, the Federal Reserve has been operating, they have a lot of credibility. And the way you see that, the Fed is sort of 10 years ago, they and a whole bunch of central banks decided that if you promise the market that over time, you're going to be targeting inflation around 2%, then that helps to anchor financial markets. That gives, if investors believe you, you have a lot of credibility, and that gives you as a central bank more flexibility to manage things. So when you look, when you look into the market and you ask, despite all this conversation about inflation that we're, we're hearing everywhere, if you ask, where are bond investors? What are they thinking? That they are, I listen to them because they're putting their money where their mouth is. And when you look at the market's long-term implied inflation expectations, they're very steady around 2%. They're not moving. And that tells you that in the background, the Federal Reserve has earned a lot of credibility. That gives them a lot of flexibility to be patient. And so right now, they're scaring everybody because they're moving quickly to get back to something more normal. But that doesn't mean that they're willing to raise interest rates so high that it triggers a recession. So I think, you know, just as we got through 
the two years ago got through the shutdown panic. We're going to get through this bottleneck inflation issue. And it'll happen organically, really, because a lot of this is just takes time to get the supply side of the economy up to where demand is. There's nothing wrong with demand. Demand is exactly where it should be. GDP is exactly back to where it would have been had there been no pandemic. And the only reason we're struggling with these inflation issues is because it's all happened very rapidly. And we did a great job taking care of people who got furloughed and everybody else. But it takes time for the business community to adapt to this rapid revival, which we've never seen in our history. So I, I think that's why I can, I can understand the anxiety about what's going on, because whenever, whenever the Fed is in motion, you worry. You don't know where it's going. But I really think um, the fundamentals for the U.S. economy for the next three to five years are pretty positive. That's good to hear. So I think we're coming up on time here. Jim, want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and sharing uh, this information with our listeners. I think it's going to put some people at ease. I'll be able to help them uh, you know, navigate these orders a little bit better. And if anybody wants to learn more about Jim and, and Story by JP Morgan, and by the way, Story by JP Morgan is a real estate management platform that JP Morgan Chase has put out, includes a digital rent collection system, market insights, educational content, and more for multifamily owners and investors. You can learn more about that at story.jpmorgan.com. I'm going to go ahead and drop that into the show notes for anybody who is interested. And uh, thanks again, Jim, for coming on the show today. Thank you. Good luck. Hey, before we go, I wanted to remind you, if you do want to catch future episodes of the State of the Market Show, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Smart Real Estate Investors, by following the link in the show notes or by simply searching for Tax Smart Real Estate Investors on YouTube. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.